You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Soupcast, coming to you from Archaeosoup Towers. By popular demand, we're taking selected videos from the Archaeosoup back catalogue and bringing them to you as convenient podcasts. As the name implies, with Archaeosoup you get a bit of everything thrown into the pot. Archaeology, discussion, humour and debate. You can find out more at archaeosoup.com. So sit back, relax and enjoy our hearty helping of Archaeosoup. Hello and welcome back to the Watching Brief for the week of the 6th of September 2021. Uh, I am joined as ever by probably a slightly muggy Mr Andy Brockman. Uh, Good morning Andy. Good morning, yeah, here in South East London it's muggy and damp it's drizzling outside um it's yeah it's just um it's not particularly exciting <laughs> it's uh, well it's, it's quite warm here i think we're about to get a storm uh, hence i have a fan right next to my head so if there's any residual noise at home folks apologies for that but i, I cannot sit here otherwise i'm afraid this morning it's very and we apologize in advance if you disappear in a big blue flash as you're struck by lightning precisely yeah it's just Regardless, though, whether I'm struck by lightning or not, our watching brief continues our ongoing mission to examine the archaeological news of the week and present it here for you for your delectation, delight and discussion uh, below. Uh, Initially, though, before we dive into this watching brief, we have a quick update from uh, Chester University, where there has been an ongoing review process underway as to staffing uh, and therefore aspects of academic provision and it seems to be tentatively good news Andy? It is good news Um, it's undoubtedly good news in the moment because uh, earlier on this week the University Vice-Chancellor who's called Professor Eunice Simmons um, emailed staff to say that a dispute that had been running really for most of this year uh, which was the uh, into potential compulsory redundancies across several departments, including archaeology. Mm. Um, the university has now concluded its process uh, and its dispute with the University College Union, and there are going to be no compulsory redundancies this year. Okay. So all the jobs in all the departments, um, apart from anyone who wishes to take voluntary severance, um, are safe. Okay. Um, which, so that's, that's yeah. good, that's good. And But presumably, though, that's this year. Is there any implications to what might happen next year, perhaps? That is the, that is the problem. Um, I've seen an email, that, uh, the email that Professor Simmons sent, and in that email she talks about um, a, number of, uh, a, a number of issues that remain outstanding, mm. um, and in particular that um, she would... Um, that there are a number of departments where student numbers the university claims uh, don't merit the staffing levels that they currently have or mm-hmm. going forward and that there will be uh that they, they they want to enhance department and viability viability by looking at um how to enhance student recruitment um uh, and to uh they, she talks about repositioning subjects in, 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 to ensure their chance of viability in future years. So the, the axe is still hovering there. The Sword of Damocles, um, it, it's, it's still secure for the moment, but the thread maybe is getting a little bit thinner. Mm. At least, though, no talk of, of vanity courses. 
but obviously we'll come to that for our our, our Muppet segment this month. Uh. <laughs> I was, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, um, uh, the uh, viewer, that was a trailer to the Muppet of the Month. Um, boy, <laughs> it is a good one. It is a good one. Anyway, before we get there, uh, we need to talk uh, about a few stories that we bundled together this week that have a common theme of the live environment that's represented by museums, historic studies, the presentation of the past, uh, and I suppose even the public discussion of of the past, or, or even specifically, I suppose, a national story, uh, and how it's, it's inescapably difficult. It can be very difficult at times to be an archaeologist, a historian, a curator, a um, an educator in, in, uh, in this sort of environment. Uh, and particularly when you're trying to balance what we termed when we were writing the agenda for this week's watching brief what we uh, termed the difference between um i suppose uh um uh, consent and censorship the the difference between a sort of a process of understanding and in some cases recontextualizing the past versus genuinely trying to hide the past uh, and deny that it ever happened and and this uh this conversation uh, or these thoughts were kicked off uh, in particular by a news story that we were linking to from the guardian uh, this week um with the headline hong kong police raid tiananmen massacre museum uh, hong kong authorities have raided the city's tiananmen massacre museum a day after arresting four members of civil society group uh, that, that ran it the raid is the la- uh, la- latest act by the police in a sweeping crackdown on dissident um, uh, civil society groups that do not tow the pro-Beijing line and came on the same day 12 activists pleaded guilty over banned Tiananmen uh, vigils that were held last year. Um, the June the 4th Museum, which has for two years displayed information and historical items related to the massacre of student protesters in Beijing on the 4th of June 18, 18, 1989, uh, is run by the Hong Kong Alliance in support of patriotic democratic movements in China, uh, which has been accused of foreign collusion under a new, um, well, under a national security law that's been newly applied to them. So this is an instance where history, uh, relatively recent history, because it's politically so um, sensitive, especially for the for the, the the government in charge, the regime in charge, that, that is actually being hidden. There's actually a photo here of of um, exi- exhibition um, uh, information panels and foam board displays being packed into the back of a truck to be taken to places unknown, perhaps even actually actively to be destroyed and uh, I suppose just to, in terms of this conversation this balances rather interestingly with another story from this week uh, on the 8th of September uh, Reuters, uh, Reuters news agency reported that a statue of um, Confederate commander Robert E. Lee was removed from its base in Richmond Virginia's capital early on Wednesday after a year-long legal battle over a monument that has been the focus of protests over racial injustice. As onlookers watched, crews secured the 21-foot, 6.4-meter bronze statue of the U.S. Civil War leader uh, to a crane that hoisted it off its 40-foot, 12.2-meter granite pedestal and placed it on the ground. Uh, the, uh, the statue has been taken into storage pending a review as to where it may be sort of essentially as they would say in this country uh, explained elsewhere maybe put on on some sort of public display with with a, an exploration of its um 
of its particular history in another place. And this is the difference, isn't it? We have, on the one hand, Hong Kong uh, actively censoring um, a civil understanding of a, of a crucial part of of of, uh, of activist history versus a process that's undergone uh, a year-long legal battle, and this is the result of it. And crucially, this the statue, Robert E. Lee, is not going to be taken to somewhere where we don't know where it is. It, we know where it's going, and it's likely to be on display in some other capacity in the near future. Um, what, where do you think some of these uh, these these balances and these sort of nuances come into play when it comes to the role of of talking about the past and being honest about it uh, as archaeologists and historians? I suppose part of the problem is the fact I can't imagine trying to tell an honest story about the past in a, a regime like China's. That I think is the problem. I think for any of us who work in uh, in heritage, in archaeology, in creating narratives about the past and communicating narratives about the past, mm. uh, that we 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 have to be aware of the political context within which we work, the mm. political and social and cultural context within which we work. It's why. You know, archaeological stories, archaeological narratives, cultural narratives are being reworked all the time. It's what historians do. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we 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 take the evidence, we we recontextualize it. Sometimes we discover new nuances, we discover new documents, new information. It's a constant debate with ourselves and then with the publics that we try and communicate with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a, there's a a huge difference though between. Um, uh, and, and, and reconsidering the past is, is is a perfectly normal, natural thing. It's it's what has happened as long as people have been discussing their pasts. Mm. I, I think what these two stories um, highlight, however, is, is what you've just explained, really, that there is a huge difference between a, a consensual legal process that's done in the open and involves debating a contested past, which people will disagree on and will continue to disagree on, mm. And crucially, um, crucially, they are free to disagree on it. And are free to disagree on it, absolutely. And lawyers are free to go to court and to try and argue one case or the other. Mm. And a government which is trying to um, effectively rewrite the past by removing part of that past which uncontestedly happened. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah, there is no question that the Tiananmen Square protests happened that many hundreds of people were killed in Tiananmen Square by the Chinese People's Liberation Army operating on behalf of the Chinese government at the time Mm -hmm. and the Chinese government of today doesn't want that discussed to the extent that you know before we started this recording I googled Tiananmen Square Square massacre to fact check a couple of things I couldn't do that if we were in China no. The, the the Great Firewall of China, as it's called, blocks Tiananmen Square ma- uh, as, as a, uh, a Tiananmen Square massacre as a search term. Mm-hmm. So you know that, uh, we're we're dealing with a debate about a contested past happening in the open with effectively censorship, yeah. and um, so you know and, and to um, and you might, for example, say, well, you know. It, 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 it's about um, removing statues and also, you know, that's an ancillary argument. Mm. 
Mm. Um, the, 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 the basis here is that we're dealing with a, broadly speaking, open and democratic process as opposed to a piece of censorship in the interest of a government which doesn't want to have anybody arguing with its version of history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, state-sanctioned censorship and yeah. or, or mandated censorship. And I suppose yeah. what what's what's at the core here is whether or not, and this is where it does relate to the role of a, of an archaeologist or a historian or a curator mm-hmm. or an educator, is whether or not these policies and these these alterations have an effect on our ability to do the stuff of history, and that is namely the ability to explain and explore how and why it is we are where we are today and often this in a in a, in a slightly more nationalistic narrative it's why we are who we are today uh, in a slightly broader narrative it's 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 um it's it's got other elements to it but if pieces are being taken away and and uh actively erased expunged from the record then it means that history can't actually be honestly told now there is a there's a there's a third sort of nuance here and that is when museums are used because they are these live spaces where national and local and and um personal interpersonal stories are are told and reframed uh there's the possibility for a museum to become a, a space where um, well, I don't know. Is, 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 would you call it sort of active discussion? Um, you know, f- formal uh, negotiation in terms of the the context and the the meaning of of these sorts of spaces. Yeah. Well, what, what appears to ha- have happened here is that uh, during the course of a, a demonstration by the uh, by by students involved in the, um, the UK Student Climate Network, which mm. is a, a, an environmental lobby group. Um, the curators from the Science Museum uh, did what they do, and curators from many museums, the Museum of London does this as well, they try and uh, update their collections all the time by collecting contemporary material which falls within their remit. Mm -hmm. And on this occasion, the curators asked some of the demonstrators, could we have, could we have your placards at the end of the demonstration? Um, one in particular is a, a, a placard of uh, the earth is a melting ice cream cone with the, the slogan, keep it cool. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, the student owners of those particular placards said, yes, you know, the, it's the, going into the science museum, the national collection of, of, of the sciences. Um, that, that is a, that is a public good thing. Then what happened is that the placards were included in the the new show mm. called Our Future Planet, which is sponsored by the Shell Petrochemical Corporation, which is heavily criticised for its involvement in fossil fuels um, and its continued promotion of fossil fuels as, uh, as opponents see it, um, particularly in the view of the climate emergency. And we discussed the, the UN report on climate change a few, uh, few weeks ago. Um, and they the, the 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 students who created the original placards went to the science museum and said wait a minute um we gave these to your collection we didn't want them put into an exhibition which is sponsored by uh, an organization which we believe is deeply damaging and we believe uh, and essentially they seem to be saying that by having that material appearing in that exhibition they appear to be condoning what they will call greenwash by shell 
Hmm. Well, the um, UK, and, UK and, Student Climate, uh, Climate Network uh, were quoted as saying, we question why the Science Museum felt it was appropriate to display placards from these protests in an exhibition sponsored by Shell, one of the corporations that the climate strikes were fighting against. So, yeah, that's, that's yeah, exactly what's at the heart of that. Um, uh, uh, absolutely. And, and, and this comes against the background of two things. Um, one is that the director of the Science Museum, Serene Blatchford, is... Uh, reported to still be actively seeking funding from fossil fuel companies. Uh, now, this is an area that has got other organisations into trouble. The British museums have problem mm -hmm. uh, problems with sponsorship by fossil fuel companies. Um, but more particularly, uh, in terms of the Science Museum, um, two months ago in July, Channel 4 News reported that in coming up with its sponsorship deal with Shell, the Science Museum had signed... Uh, what is sometimes termed a gagging clause, which, um, in quotes, uh, prevented the Science Museum from, quotes, damaging the goodwill or reputation, end quote, of Shell. Now, I think any independent observer of these things, any uh, journalist, any historian actually worth their, worth their salt, any archaeologist worth their salt, um, to actually sign up in advance not to criticise something mm. is a form of censorship. Yeah, yeah. And is not acceptable, particularly in an academic, you know, an institution like a museum, which is meant to be a place to explore and learn. Uh, well, and arguably, this is this is precisely <laughs> this is precisely why um, having adequate budgets is a good idea for museums. It means that they're not vulnerable to these sorts of requests from people who are essentially subsidising and filling in um, gaps when it comes to putting on exhibitions in museum spaces. I suppose one could be slightly cynical and say, well, that's precisely why budgets are kept small, so that so that museums, etc., might be uh, might be more amenable to to uh, messaging and this kind of thing. But uh, but that's a, that's a hot, that's a very complex, new, you know, nuanced conversation that that's required there. But nonetheless, it does raise this question, and it and it raises a very important, um, recurring, echoing point, I think, in our conversations in Watching Brief, as to the nature of what we do, and that is to say, it is by its very nature a often a fairly difficult and politically laden topic we're looking at the past of human beings and politics is nothing other really than presenting people with a a story that gets them excited so that they vote for you and that story often revolves around uh, <laughs> revolves around ideas of our past and therefore a vision of our future as well often based upon ideas of our past uh, and so um just to bring this section to a close uh this brings us to um something that's come out of the the dw um, the German news agency, uh, where in their arts section they have a headline here: "Call to preserve Afghan cultural heritage and protect workers." Um, now, I do believe that that they're not the first to make this sort of call uh, in in um, uh, or, or sorry, highlight this call rather, sorry, in in the past few weeks, but it does highlight the the necessary consideration of the importance of this sort of problem in so much as there, there's, there's been a tendency in the past few weeks I've seen on, on, on Twitter in particular myself for colleagues and friends even to to dare I say pontificate 
about the need to you know, not 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 you know not be too loud about our concerns about about archaeological heritage and um, and museums etc. We need to think more mostly about about the people involved in conflict, and this is true. But what we see when we look more closely is that. Uh, museums, cultural heritage, because they are live issues. And for example, actually this morning there are unconfirmed reports from the Bamiyan uh, Cultural Museum of um, of artifacts being uh, looted and or destroyed, computers being damaged as well and taken away. That is unconfirmed, though we, we will have to try and confirm that. Um, it, it's clear that, 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 that uh, for example, the Taliban are not unaware of the power of this material and also of the people who've been working with this material over the past uh, past couple of decades. So uh, in this instance, employees of museums and archaeological sites also need protection, says the news story, in the wake of Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. The biggest concern, obviously, is the people. And we said on Watching Brief before you protect, uh, we, we, we talked about it the other day, um, the, other, uh, the other week when we were, we were talking about Tigray. Mm. You know, you protect the past by protecting the people. Mm. Um, mm. And there is an issue again. This ties in with our earlier discussion about Tiananmen and, 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 and Confederate statues in the United States and so on. In that, here we are dealing with a government that, when it was last in power, um, chose for ideological and religiously reasons, it would appear, to do two things. One was to turn a blind eye to looting and trafficking of art, art, uh, art objects and artifacts and antiquities to, the, to, to uh, the outside world, and in, particularly into Western art markets. Um, but at the same time, uh, as a cultural and political statement, um, it was destroying elements of... Afghanistan's culture that didn't, uh, in its view, t uh, tie into it, it, its worldview of what Afghanistan is and should be. Uh, the most famous instance is the blowing up of the Bamiyan Buddhas. Mm. Um, some, you know, the, 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 uh, incredibly beautiful, significant examples of Buddhist, the influence of Buddhist culture in Afghanistan, mm. which were deliberately blown up mm. um, and have been the subject of a lot of debate and attempts at restoration and you talked about the Birmingham Museum mm. earlier. Um, whether we'll see that again, I mean, um, the, the, the developed article that you quoted, um, it, um, it, it, it uh, basically is a, an interview with um, a, a German archaeologist called Uta Franke. And she is asked a number of questions in the course of the article. Um, and she, she was asked, um, that, do you, do you believe the Taliban's assurances that they'll respect cultural treasures in the future? There's been a lot of talk of a Taliban 2.0, but this isn't the Taliban that took power in the 1990s. Um, it's, it, they're much more savvy, more, uh, they're much more aware of their, uh, uh, of their public image and they want to, they, they want to and need to engage with the outside world because they need development money apart from anything else. And they need the Afghan government's assets unfrozen. Mm. Um, but Franca says, I can't assess that at the moment. I hope it's true, but there's a certain skepticism based on past experiences and they go beyond the destruction of the Buddhist statues in the Bamiyan Valley. After all, one hears that they, uh, there have already been attacks in Bamiyan, including on the depots. I would, it would be nice 
if promises to protect archaeological sites and to prohibit robbery excavations will be kept, that will be seen in the near future. I think all we can do is two things here. One is to be aware and for the border authorities to be aware, for our auction houses to be aware of the distinct possibility that uh, the next months and years we'll see an increase in unprovenanced Afghanistan ob uh, antiquities and objects appearing in Western antiquities markets. Mm. Um, well, well, actually, this week there was a story in Norway where um, uh, a lot of uh, artifacts that were, I think, looted from Iraq were recovered in uh, by police there. Yes. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's just, it's a sad hobby lobby. <laughs> Excuse me, sorry. <laughs> it's a sad echo. It's a sad ripple that, that follows on from these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I suppose. Uh, and, 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 but, but I think that the, but the other thing I'll say is, is perhaps more important even than the objects. There are people still in Afghanistan who worked for international bodies and with international workers, there are archaeological projects, museum projects, and so on. Um, many of those people now may well feel now in, in, in personal danger because of their involvement with the outside world, with a subject that historically the Taliban doesn't have any time for, and in fact actively opposes, which, you know, the, the, the cultural, the, the study of the cultural nuances and richness of the country mm. that go way beyond its Islamic culture you know which is rich in itself but uh, you know the buddhist influence the greek influence through you know um the border of the, the empire of alexander and then the empire the empire of persia and so on you know afghanistan is this incredible historical cultural crossroads in in, in, in asia so with all of these factors working in such live historical and political environments, whether it's with regimes who don't want you to tell the full story, whether it's negotiating with the public as to how the story might be better told, uh, whether it's working in contested or even conflict uh, zones and trying to manage the, the human story that's still being written in many cases uh, through those those conflicts. Uh, it's, it's little wonder that so many archaeologists, historians and others are feeling the pressure at the moment and uh, this is uh, this is before we come to a story that uh, was published three days ago by um, uh, based upon research by the uh, UCU, University College Union, um, from uh, work done at Newcastle University where they uh, surveyed 429 people between February and April in 2021 and came to the conclusion that university staff are facing an unmanageable workload with women uh, who are suffering, it seems, the most. Uh, the poll found 78% of staff overall had described their workload as unmanageable at least half of the time, and that people were working 20% longer than their expected hours. And it should be said that this isn't because of the pandemic, it's simply been made worse by the pandemic, hasn't it, Andy? That's right. I think one of the striking things in the report, and, and I do urge again uh, our viewers to uh, look it up and, 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 and to read it. Well, um, it'll be linked below. So they have the link to this and the news story below. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's actually quite a sobering account of what it's like 
or the, the perception of what it, of the of, of the sample of what it's like to work in UK higher education uh, at the moment. Mm. Uh, as you say, it's not just referring to the impact of the pandemic. Obviously, that is key. It talks about, for example, the difficulty that people have had working from home in balancing their teaching duties with, for example, childcare mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and homeschooling. Yep. Um, so, and then also um, having to enact uh, so-called blended learning regimes as well. So having something that's, that, right. that's at times face-to-face, that, -face, at times digital. It's, it's that, That's right. And, and, and it talks to the structural issues too, like, for example, the allegation that management has flip-flopped between wanting to go from a, an, an entirely online regi mm. learning regime to the kind of blended regime that you've just referred to and any variation in between, mm. um, which has only added to the workload because people have had to you know, constantly rejig, reconfigure what they're doing. And which, so it's not just the teaching time, it's the preparation time mm. that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I think people forget that um, it, it, perhaps sometimes when we're talking about higher education, it's not somebody produce, you know, producing, uh, delivering lectures that they've been delivering to the same module for year on year. Mm. It, it's having to rejig that module and then rejig the module again because of different distant uh, social distancing rules being in place and so on. You know, so it, it, it's a very complex moving image of, a, of, of, a, of an area which is putting people under a, a, a additional stress on top of the existing issues like, for example, um, working more hours than uh, you're contracted for because you've taken on additional admin roles, for example, or you're having to prepare a new module. Um, the stresses of, for example, fixed term contracts or zero hours contracts mean academics don't know that they're going to be even be employment, uh, you know, this time next month, let alone this time next year. Mm -hmm. um, it's so just make for a secure it, or healthy healthy mind as it were um and on, it, on top of that, on top of that as well i mean just in my experience in working with uh, this isn't newcastle but some other departments uh we've been mm. working on projects that have taken nine months and they're still ongoing when actually really the ideal would have been a three-month turnaround on some of this stuff but it's because we've been having to deal with oh suddenly these 30 people have covid or this person has to isolate or that you know it's it's been it has been um definitely made worse by the pandemic um but, I, 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 absolutely i mean there was a report that and it cited in the in, in the newcastle report there was a report that was done by uh, the university of durham uh, durham university which reported uh, just uh, only just under half of the staff surveyed that uh, 47 percent of the people surveyed um, reported their mental health as being poor. 55% mm. um, described themselves as being emotionally exhausted. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's, Can I that? I'll put up my hand. It's not... <laughs> yeah. Me, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. And, 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 and as you say, it's not just the, the responsibilities to universities and to, to students. Um, the uh, Again, the... the, the the Newcastle report quotes uh, somebody as saying, you know, I can't shake the feeling that in trying to keep up with all the work demands, I've let down my child. And if I try to accept that the just do what you can approach, my own stress and anxiety rockets to nearly, nearly paralyzing levels, which I have yeah. to push through. Yeah. Most days I feel I'm just barely clinging on with my fingernails on the cliff face. I'm pretty stoic and able to cope with tough times, lots of practice, but I cry most days now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, yeah, okay. There will be people out there, not necessarily our viewers, but there will be people out there who say, you know, snowflakes, 
just suck it up. Uh, you know, the, the, the bus driver and the supermarket worker who's been, you know, has had it, you know, just as tough, if not tougher. Mm. Um, but I think, well, you know, first of all, everybody deserves to be treated well. Nobody, nobody should be made to feel like that just by going to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think whatever happens in other sectors, uh, one thing that's been driven home to me in the last few months covering the stories at Sheffield and at Worcester and at Chester is how actually university managements have made, have taken actions which have laid stress, additional stress and distress on their staff and on their students actually, Mm. because I think we mustn't forget students in this too, although this is a report about the, 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 the teaching staff. Um, but university managements have taken decisions which have laid these additional stresses on people at a, a time which is already you know, w- w- unprecedentedly stressful. You know, the world we're living in now is one that is disconcerting, discombobulating, um, sometimes even frightening, perhaps. Mm. Um, and they've taken these actions in way um, um, cause stress, which is entirely avoidable. Uh, in both the case at Sheffield and particularly at Worcester, which I've been looking at most recently, the university appears to have made no preparation Mm. for supplying support, direct support to the people most affected by the decision to close courses, Mm. Um, which is considering they have a legal responsibility under the Health and Safety at Work Act to support their staff, including in areas of mental health. Mm. Um, it's, uh, I just find it deeply sad that people can, that, that, you know, that, that people can have so little consideration for those responsibilities. You know, well, well, and that it, 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 yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one of the, the findings here, the executive summary, uh, one of the summary points is that people working much longer than expected um, in terms of their hours per week, and that working those longer hours up to 20 to 30% more than, 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 than um, contracted has become the norm, not the exception. Mm. Yeah. And this, this this brings us on to, I suppose, a broader point, and that is that part of the response to this report in the past past few days has been to see people saying, uh, at, at the very least, that they recognise this. They go, yep, that's happening at my university. I feel like that. Mm-hmm. That's the way it certainly is, you know, wherever I work. Uh, and at a slightly more extreme in terms of the response, we've actually seen people saying, and that's normal. That's just that's yes. that's just life. That's just you know. What do you expect if you want to be an academic? Um, and I suppose it reminded me, unfortunately, of some of the the less helpful responses to, uh, for example, the meet the hashtag Me Too movement on uh, that we that we saw initially exploding on Twitter, where mm-hmm. some people, particularly often established figures, um, figures who 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 felt that they that they had been through 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 various systems more or less said, what are you complaining about? That is the way it is. That's the way I had to do that, you know, and, and look at me now, it didn't do me any harm. And, and you know, we can't speak for those people as to whether or not they're in some form of denial, but certainly they shouldn't be wishing a harmful env- work environment on other people just because it has become normal. Um, that it, is a... It's problematic in that sense. 
yeah look that that kind of culture that you know it's it was like that for me when i was your age this is how i got to be you know where i am now you know mm. you want to be here you have to be there yeah and that is a kind of culture that in areas like for example medicine uh, in the treatment of junior doctors, they've been trying to get rid of that culture for the last couple of decades. They realise how damaging it actually is. Yeah. So if if people in the heritage sector, in higher education, in, in, in heritage and archaeology are coming across that kind of attitude, then, boy, we've got a lot to learn um, because that's been recognised as damaging in other, other sectors for a long time. Mm. Mm. Um, it's not easy to remedy. No. Um, but at least the recognition's there that it's not the way that you, it, it doesn't create a healthy workforce. Literally, it doesn't create a healthy workforce. It certainly doesn't create a healthy relationship between different parts of that workforce. Mm, mm. Um, you know, so it, it, I think, again, it's, like, I think it's one of those areas where the pandemic has highlighted particular issues, particular problems, mm. and the ramifications are going to take a long while to work through and work out and hopefully hopefully uh hopefully they will work out and hopefully we'll, we'll be around to see them work out uh in so much as um uh, we're also this is also coming in the context of of as you've alluded to at sheffield and worcester unhelpful management practices that mm -hmm. uh, once again i would trail our muppet of the month we're going to be recording early next week um now i think uh um where you know, managers could be more helpful when it comes to reassuring their staff as to, um, frankly, even what they think of the work that they do. But anyway, I don't want to go too much into that. It is genuinely a high-end muffetry, though, um, that, that we'll be highlighting. Uh, it's uh, a classic. And, and something else that I'd like to highlight right at the end of this week's Watching Brief is uh, our Patreon page. Um, we have, or RKSoup has a Patreon account uh, where we've instigated a tier recently specifically for you guys to support our work on Watching Brief. Um, this, this weekly uh, weekly format, especially with the more investigative elements and uh, interviewing people and preparing and the proper questions and editing, has become, I suppose, not more intensive, but certainly we've become more aware of how regularly we, we work on this stuff. And uh, and in the in that context of mental health and and valuing work, I suppose what I would I would invite you to do is just maybe consider supporting us on Patreon. It'd be very you'd be very welcome um, in terms of that support. And the tier uh, is called the Leek and Potato Soup tier. Uh, I don't know who's Leek and who's Potato. I'm happy to be oh, Potato. I, I, I'll, I'll happily receive the leaks. Okay, Grant, you can be leek. I'll be potato. <laughs> Uh, and also there's a bread bun on the side. We can both dive in and stay nice and warm. Um, anyway, regardless, do check out page one if you're interested. Um, your support would be very welcome. And um, uh, yeah, and we are actually considering changes to to what we might offer in terms of Patreon for watching Brief. But initially, we just wanted to highlight this because the past few weeks haven't really felt like the time to talk about Patreon, have they, Andy? We haven't wanted to, to say at the end of, for example, when we're interviewing people, at Worcester University. Oh, by the way, we have a Patreon. It just didn't feel appropriate. But, but I think in the context of being, you know, tired and strung out and in a in a in a stressful and difficult work environment, sometimes um, your support would be very welcome, folks. Uh, please do consider it. Um, 
I suppose that's it for this week's watching brief, Andy. Uh, I say look forward to next week's uh, Muppet of the Month, and who knows where we will be. There were a couple of, of stories brewing on the horizon, but uh, we can't really even hint at them, can we, at the moment? Uh, there's stuff on the whiteboard that's behind you that's that we can't show either. So <laughs> exciting news is 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 a coming, I suppose. Um, uh, did you have any, any 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 sort of you know nose nose tapping um, hints at all? Uh, no. <laughs> Excellent, Grant. Well, thank you for your time this morning, Andy. Thank you guys for watching and listening at home. Uh, and until next time, do take care. Bye bye. This podcast episode has been produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network in collaboration with Archaeosoup Productions. Find out more podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.